So yes, as Jason said, today we begin this new series called High Altitude Faith. And if you picture Jesus on a high hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee, that is the picture of where he gave the Sermon on the Mount. It's a lovely place, very verdant, very nicely sloped, and lots of people can sit there and hear him as he speaks out over to the Sea of Galilee. He takes the posture of a rabbi. A rabbi sits to teach. And so, we're going to talk about the blessings and the benefits, eight facets of discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus. They are like rungs of a ladder that Jesus has arranged in a particular order. There's a pattern to this arrangement. Each step builds on the foundation of the one below. We really can't divide them up or mix them up. Um, we can't really say, I'll take the one about peacemaking, you take the one about purity. They go together. And Jesus enfleshes all of the Beatitudes. The first, as you'll see in your order of worship on the inside cover, is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, blessed is different than happy, even though some translations say happy. Happiness depends on our circumstances, on happenstance. But this word relates to God, and makarios, which is that Greek word, has to do with God giving us sufficiency, giving us satisfaction and security. And in the Old Testament, blessedness was always connected to God. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? What is spiritual poverty? It's not groveling, cowering poverty, but it's knowing that we need help and calling out to God for help. J.B. Phillips translated it this way, How joyous are the humble-minded, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The kingdom of heaven is the realm or the reign of God in our lives and in our world and beyond. So the opposite of spiritual poverty is pride or self-sufficiency. Next, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And I always share that in a memorial service. This is comfort to the grieving. It gives hope. As Paul says in Romans 5, hope that does not disappoint. But comfort is not a soft thing like cotton balls or Kleenex. Comfort is a word from the Latin that means with strength. And God gives us strength. Fortitude is another word that's built on that same root. Yes, we will be given strength. Also, when we realize and admit that we are poor in spirit, we mourn, we grieve. That's part of confession and repentance. We don't need to get into an obsession with confession and have a negative downward spiral because, remember, this is about high-altitude faith. With the promise of forgiveness, a clean slate, we are given strength for the day and strength for the journey. Dare not become arrogant or haughty. And the antidote to that is in the next, ver next verse. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
we can trust God for the sufficiency and security. As the Apostle Paul wrote, we can be content no matter what our circumstances are. Jesus' mother Mary is really a wonderful example of this. Remember her response to the angel Gabriel's annunciation that she would bear the Christ child? Be it done to me according to your word. This is such wise counsel, isn't it? And a great model to follow. Remember Mary also said to the servants at that wedding at Cana, do whatever he tells you. Isn't that what we want to be doing? Doing whatever he tells us. Meek can also mean gentle. In fact, the New English Bible translates this, Blessed are those of gentle spirit. And Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is about exercising self-control. It is not weakness. Meekness does not equal meekness. Rich Mao, the former president of Fuller Seminary, has said that in his book called Holy Civility, meekness and gentleness are played down in our world. Rudeness is tauted. It's highlighted. Why did Jesus choose this particular sequence from mourning to meekness? Meekness allows others to say things about me that ordinarily I might resent or defend or react against. But another aspect of meekness is being yielded to God. You know, we lifted our hands in that song. We don't need to fight back or um, be concerned about our reputation because we are in God's hands. And God helps us not to bear grudges, not to nurse roots of bitterness. Meekness, it's said, is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in an attitude and conduct that respects others. And then we live out this with humility and patience. Gentleness, you may also remember, is a fruit of the spirit, rarely uh, a normal personality trait, as we are open to the Holy Spirit and make ourselves available to God, then, indeed, we may become meek. As I said earlier, and as you know, this is a celebration of the Lunar New Year today, the beginning of the year of the horse. And Psalm 32, you think, now how in that can that relate to Scripture? But Psalm 32 is one of the classic psalms about repentance and forgiveness. And in it, it says, do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding whose temper must be curbed with bit and bridle, else it will not stay near you. This is such a classic psalm. And we can learn that our attitudes are most conducive to being whole and healed, uh, forgiven and freed when we are like a docile horse, when we are meek not rebellious and headstrong and wild. Meek also means being tame. And it comes from the idea of training horses to accept a rider, also training dogs to shepherd sheep. When we are tamed from wildness and our own feralness, 
We become our truest and best selves. Don't you want, don't I want, God's Spirit to guide every aspect of our lives? Jesus is God in the flesh, and we are to become more and more like Jesus, who was meek and gentle, yet strong and victorious. So what's the other side of this equation? What's in it for the meek? It says, the meek shall inherit the earth. That's kind of surprising, isn't it? I don't know how many of you have seen or heard um, an old Broadway show and movie called Camelot. But in it, the guy named Mordred says, I find humility means to be hurt. It's not the earth that the meek inherit, it's the dirt. Now that is what is ordinarily thought about for those who are meek. The world glamorizes vice and minimizes virtue. The world expects the meek to be trampled, ignored at best. Isn't it the tough, the assertive, if not the aggressive, who succeed? Didn't the children of Israel have to fight for the promised land? Isn't that what we need to do? Fight makes right? No, that's wrong. To receive our spiritual inheritance takes meekness, not might. Remember, the the prophet said, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And think of Jesus, just even in Holy Week, as he was walking up to Jerusalem the first time, when the apostles were behind him vying for leadership, he said, Do not lord it over others, but serve. Then he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the foal of a donkey, not a big, white, victorious stallion. He washed his followers' feet. And he said to do likewise. He said, love as I love you. And when he was praying in the garden, he said, not my will, but yours. That is meekness. Rudolf Steyer has written, self-renunciation is the way to the world's domination. That's a challenge. Then we come to the fulcrum beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Remember, God is sufficient. God satisfies. The first three of those uh, beatitudes focused on our relationship with God and our needs. And now, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is the use of lamenting and confessing our sin, acknowledging the truth about ourselves to both God and people if we leave it there? This is the bridge to the rest of the Beatitudes. The second half of the Beatitudes, the last four blessings, seems to turn more from our attitude to God to our attitude toward people. So it's the two beams of the cross, the vertical on which the horizontal hangs. For what do we usually hunger and thirst? Status, achievement, success, recognition, possessions. We heard about that in the video. Youth, beauty, a connection with others that could be helpful for us. In Southern California, we often hear that it's youth and beauty. Think of the story by Oscar Wilde the picture of Dorian Gray. This is an updated version of Dr. Faustus. A man is ravenously hungry for youth and beauty, and so he makes a deal with the devil. His 
painted image will be what ages instead of his own body. And this man goes through life with no real joy, but with a very superior attitude and a lot of contempt for others. Later, he visits that image that is hidden in the attic, and it, which began as a lovely, useful picture, has become a loathsome monster. And then he takes his own life before who he has become is found out. Oscar Wilde's moral is classic. We have to take charge of our hungers and thirsts, or they will take charge of us. Every uncontrolled passion or addiction, that would be a hunger or thirst gone amok, is potentially very damaging and disfiguring. We have a friend who, uh, whose teenage son was killed by a car as he was walking along Highway 111 out at Palm Desert. And revenge became the mode of operation and the goal of the parents. I saw them 10, 15 years later. They were unrecognizable. They had changed even in their faces so much. It does happen. The fourth beatitude has some key words. Righteousness is a heavy one. For me, originally, when people would talk about righteousness, it would smack of self-righteousness, and that's not very attractive. I was first introduced to the biblical meaning of righteousness by Bishop Festo Kavengeri, who was an Anglican bishop from Uganda, the co-founder with South African Michael Cassidy of African Enterprise. During Uganda's reign of terror under Idi Amin in the 1970s, Bishop Festo and his wife Mira and children escaped on foot at night over the mountains into Rwanda, which at that point was a safe place, <clears throat> to avoid being next on dictator Amin's execution list. Another bishop had already been killed. Festo later wrote a book, I Love Idi Amin. It was shocking. But he wanted to emphasize that the qualities of forgiveness for those who wronged us and love of those who persecute us is core to our Christian faith. Festo stated, on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. As evil as Idi Amin is, how can I do less toward him? Pretty powerful. Righteousness be, means being in right relationship with God, with self, and with others. It's really a fulfillment of the great commandment, which is our church's mission statement, to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbors as ourselves. The biblical righteousness is more than just personal, though. It has sexual righteousness implications. So, because of that, we are concerned and pray and give to those who are Syrian refugees um, in Jordan and um, in Lebanon. We celebrate the promotion of civil rights as we have highlighted Martin Luther King Jr.'s very helpful ministry. We work for justice in law courts. We strive for integrity in business. In the home, we relationships 
following God's commandment to honor our fathers and our mothers, but also lifting up from the Proverbs not to provoke our children with harshness nor laxity. Thus, Christians are committed to hunger for righteousness in the whole human community. Luther expressed it with his customary vigor when he said, The command to us is not to crawl into a corner or into the desert, but to run out, if that is where you've been, and to offer your hands and your feet and your whole body and to wager everything you have and can do. What is required is a hunger and thirst for righteousness that can never be curbed or stopped or sated. One that looks for nothing and cares for nothing except the accomplishment and maintenance of the right, despising everything that hinders this end. If you cannot make the world completely faithful, then do what you can. So the question for us is, what do we hunger and thirst for? And hunger and thirst in this way connotes a healthy, uh, hearty spiritual appetite. Lloyd Ogilvie has written that it's as though God is saying, I want my people to long for me the way I long for them. The promise of Jesus is that whoever drinks of the water, the living water that he gives, will never thirst. But we do need to keep on drinking. We drink deeply of the living water in daily prayer and scripture reading, in times of study alone, and in sharing with small groups, in corporate worship and in celebrating the sacrament, and in serving together in Christ's name. It's helping us to think about the Beatitudes in a different way. These are not Jesus' eight commandments, but the Beatitudes are blessings to be received as seeds, which in time will bear fruit by the Spirit the Holy Spirit's power, not just as laws to be followed. Next is, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. What is mercy? Have any ideas? What would you say would be a synonym for mercy? You can talk. I'm waiting. Say it again. Forgiveness. Okay, great. Others? Undeserved grace. Excellent. Terrific. Kindness, sympathy would be some other possibilities. Mercy in the original languages of the Bible means to get inside the other's skin until we see things through their eyes, think things through the other's mind, and feel with the other's feelings. We talk about that in our culture, walking in, uh, in somebody else's moccasins. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did in being born as a baby, human baby? living as a normal human child and an adult in identifying, empathizing, and involving himself with us. And continues saying, mercy is our pain in God's heart. And this results in God's outgoing, ingoing, and ongoing love for us. The pain in God's heart was intensified, and so mercy was incarnated in Jesus Christ, who came with forgiveness, as you said, unreserved. Forbearance, unlimited. On the main, in the manger, on the cross, and in the empty tomb. We cannot give mercy unless we've received it. 
oftentimes, Don and I, in the years we were at Hollywood Press, heard Lloyd say, it can't happen to you. It can't happen through you unless it's happened to you. If we are not merciful, we need to allow the Lord in the Holy Spirit to give us a fresh experience of God's love and mercy. And then it'll overflow through us and splash on others. If mercy is our pain in God's heart, there's a test for us. Do we feel others' pain in our hearts? The New Testament is consistent. To be forgiven, we must forgive. And so, before our communion, we will pray together the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts, our sins, our trespasses, as we forgive others. So, how do we make sure that we remain and continue to be merciful? It's important that us that we remember that we are sinners. That we continue to repent and experience God's forgiveness. And then remember that and in thankfulness, pass it on. Grace, which someone said, is that outgoing love of God. Mercy is God's incoming love. Peace hopefully, is the ongoing experience. This leads us to verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The message puts it this way. You are blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart, put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. There's a lot in the uh, in Sermon on the Mount and in the Beatitudes about congruence, having the inside match the outside. Through the years, the heart has always been understood to be the hub of human identity, linked with our capacity to love and our physical and spiritual life. A pure heart is one that knows its poverty, mourns and repents, hungers and thirsts for a right relationship with God, others, and self, receives and offers mercy, and is undivided. Soren Kierkegaard said, purity of heart is to will one thing. How many of you have seen City Slickers 2? A long time ago. Curly in City Slickers 2 said, one thing is important. And Billy Crystal's character asked, what is it? And then Curly died. Curly's one thing probably wasn't God's one thing. And you know, the the medieval contemplatives would often say, one thing. Blessed are those who are not double-minded is another way that this is translated. Singleness of mind is not simple-mindedness nor narrow-mindedness. Think of Jesus. He was neither of those things. So how do we purify our hearts What do we learn? Isaiah, in its first chapter, says, Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. And we hear this throughout the New Testament also. So, where do we see that most clearly? Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. In whom do we see God most perfectly? In Jesus. And we need to focus our attention and uh, not be distracted. We need to pray that God's Spirit would remove our spiritual cataracts. 
So Moffat's translation of this beatitude continues. Blessed are those who are not double-minded, for they shall be admitted into the intimate presence of God. The, the letter of James says, draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. And it is God who is always initiating that, inviting us, wooing us. And when we draw near, it's simply an open response. Think of your heart as a building or a, a door, a room with windows. What are the cloudy spots on that window? Invite the Holy Spirit to wash the windows of your heart. Begin to see the world in the sunlight, S-O-N, that each human being is made in God's image. God's creation is made for our stewardship. The possibility of intimate communion is a gift and an invitation. We go from a pure heart into the next verse, which is, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. God made peace with us and for us at an immense cost, the cost of the lifeblood of God's Son. We must remember that part of the prophecy about the coming Messiah was that he was to be the Prince of Peace. That's who Jesus is. And Galatians says that peace is one of the fruit of the Spirit, another one. So how do we allow that to develop in us? Really, it's being open again to God's divine work. Peace means reconciliation. It's not just the absence of conflict. A great course that Kerygma designed years ago was called Shalom. And it looks at all of what the Old Testament and uh, the New Testament says about peace. Shalom and irony. God is the author of peace and reconciliation. Remember, Paul wrote in, in Ephesians, For he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups, Jews and non-Jews in that case, into one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. So, question is, what is your work of peacemaking this week? What kind of peacemaking relationship do you need to have with God? How about with others in your Jerusalem, your family, in your Judea? your neighborhood. In your Samaria, is there a co-worker, someone you might unwittingly dismiss that you need to make peace with? And to the ends of the earth, for what part of the world are you called to pray? I have uh, with a friend, a Kenyan orphan named Judy Akinyi, whom we have been supporting for 10 years. And um, she is often in my heart and in my prayers. In this time of turmoil in Egypt, our congregation through the Outreach Foundation um, is supportive of Cinda and Steve Gorman. We need to be supporting them in prayer. And Psalm 122 says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. And we always need to be praying for the peace of Jerusalem. And finally, the persecuted. This is the double Uh, the double beatitude. First it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus goes from preaching to meddling and says, 
Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. What are we supposed to do? Rejoice and be glad. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Why do you think Jesus moved from peacemaking to persecution? From the work of reconciliation to the experience of hostility? Do you think we can always make peace with those with whom we want to reconcile? No. Luce Reeds in his book, Forgive and Forget, talks about those that we want to uh, forgive and experience, from whom we want to experience forgiveness. But they may have died. And so we just need to do some interior work and trust God. We need to take some initiative, even if there are those who have uh, verbally abused or slandered us. Jesus says that when we're reviled and slandered for righteousness' sake, we need to do that. So we need to be sure that this is happening not because we're careless or obnoxious or inappropriate. It is because, it may be because, we find distasteful the right relationships we seek with God, others, and ourselves. Persecution is partly allowed by God as a test, a, a refining, a token of genuineness to test our authenticity. And we are in good company with all those who have gone before us. So as God's people are to judge our persecutors, blame them, retaliate, sulk? No. We're to rejoice and be glad because God is at work. Because our reward will be great in heaven. We may lose everything on earth. And actually, when we die, we always do lose everything on earth. But as a free gift, we receive everything in heaven. Calvin said, the promise of the reward is free. Since all the Beatitudes describe what every Christian people and all of us together are intended to be, we conclude with the condition of being despised, rejected, slandered, and persecuted. Huh, that kind of reminds me of Jesus the Messiah. And we're told that a servant is not above the master. Jesus incarnated all the Beatitudes. Every Christian is to be open to the Spirit and have these as a, as a goal, to be a peacemaker. But you might expect some opposition, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, and to expect that we might suffer. In every age, there is anti-Christian hostility. And really, it's always the false prophets that were the popular ones. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was consistently anti-Nazi when it was most dangerous to be so. He was, he was executed just a few days before his concentration camp was liberated. He believed and taught this. Suffering, then, is a badge of discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Following Christ means suffering. The church, he said, has been defined as the community of those who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. And so let me just close with this quotation from John Stott in his book, Christian Counterculture, about the Sermon on the Mount. 
The Beatitudes paint a comprehensive portrait of the Christian disciple. We see a disciple first alone on his or her knees before God, acknowledging spiritual poverty and mourning over it. This makes the disciple meek or gentle in all relationships, since honesty compels us to allow others to think of us as we confess ourselves before God. Yet the disciple is far from acquiescing to sinfulness, for the disciple hungers and thirsts for righteousness, right relationships, longing to grow in grace and goodness. We see the Christian disciples next with others out in the human community. Our relationship with God does not cause us to withdraw from society nor be insulated from the world's pain. On the contrary, we are to be in the thick of it, showing mercy to those battered by adversity and sin. We are to be transparently sincere in all our dealings and seek to play a constructive role as a peacemaker. Yet, we are not thanked for all of our efforts, but rather opposed, slandered, insulted, and persecuted on account of the righteousness for which we stand in the Christ with whom we are identified. Such a man or woman is blessed, that is, who has the approval of God and finds fulfillment as a human being. What would a world be like that was led by the meek? Where peacemakers were honored above everyone else, where tears were wiped away, where hearts and minds are pure, where mercy always triumphed over hate, where steadfast love and faithfulness meet, and righteousness and peace kiss each other. This is surely high-altitude faith. Let us Open ourselves to God's spirit that we might be people of high altitude faith. Amen.